So uh, today's talk is one uh, that I gave uh, over there and is loosely based upon it with some modifications and it's about airway trauma. Now I previously talked about uh, surgical airways and talked about uh, difficult airways. Uh, but I think that there are certain nuances. I personally think that you can actually do a fellowship just on difficult airway situations. And it wouldn't be the wrong thing to do. I think that every hospital should have a minimum one or two people that are just extremely comfortable with a difficult airway. And the reason why is because it's the second most common cause of death from, from a, you know, from a neck trauma, uh, blunt or penetrating. Uh, the most common being exsanguination, uh, as has been previously studied. In terms of a uh, quick disclaimer, so everybody whose picture is up here and for the next three uh, series, in fact, I would say 80% of what I put up, unless there's something under it, uh, are patients that have been gracious enough to allow us to use their pictures uh, for educational purposes. They're under a Creative Commons license. Uh, the scope of today's talk is to effectively address the difficult airway in trauma. And, you know, that's all we're going to be talking about for this episode. I'm hoping to follow it up with the next episode on blunt cerebrovascular injuries and uh, my personal approach to them. And then maybe a third episode on damage control neck surgery in the context of penetrating neck injury, not blunt. So a uh, quick case uh, from our practice. Uh, over here in Kuwait, we have... A, a very good relationship with the local combat sports circuit. And this is one of the fights uh, that uh, we were covering as medical personnel. Um, I've said this before, I personally am involved with jujitsu. That's not a, that's not how I would personally do a single leg takedown, but, or attempt it more aptly. But, you know, needless to say, that happened. Now, afterwards, uh, the uh, person in the green shorts his uh, GCS was 15 over 15. He didn't have any problems in terms of C-spine protection, no focal neurological deficit. He was breathing. His blood pressure was fine. A little bit hypertensive tachycardic for obvious reasons. He was perfect as a peach, except for one thing. When he looked in his mouth, there was a freely mobile mandible, and you can see that he broke his jaw with an open fracture on the inside. Now, as with most traumas, uh, you'd start off with your airway, address his uh, breathing, and make a decision. In this particular case, we did decide to take him for a CT brain C-spine, an awake intubation in the ER, an awake intubation in the OR, or surgical airway, bearing in mind that he's satting 99% and is awake and oriented. Well, you know, this brings up the dilemma. And the dilemma comes from a failure to recognize the difference between karate and MMA, or the matrix. And I mentioned this before during my difficult airway talk where I compare uh, dealing with an airway with uh, preparing fresh pasta. Um, it's, it's a long story. But uh, I would put it to you this way. With an elective airway, it's a preset set of rules, uh, much like in karate, with a preset set of moves. And it's about coordination and timing. And there's a referee involved. With a resuscitation room airway that's potentially difficult, the airway is Neo from the Matrix, and uh, you are uh, the other person who keeps duplicating himself and can never win. 
effectively the airway is 100% adamant that it's going to win. It already knows your moves and it's already planned for them. And I would contend that uh, an airway expert isn't somebody who, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, it's not somebody who's done 100,000 of these. It's somebody who knows what the first plan of attack is, has a backup plan, sets these things into motion early, and always has a failsafe. I don't think that it has anything to do with a fucking logbook, all right? I don't care how many gallbladders you've intubated. If somebody arrests because you can get their airway in time, you will be kicking your own ass for about a year because it's the most horrible feeling that I've ever seen anybody experience. Losing an airway is like one of the worst things that you can experience during your medical career. And I think that any of you who've been in that position can agree. And you have to understand, you will be faced with a difficult airway. It's an inevitability. But how you address it makes a huge difference to you, to your peers, to the stress levels in the room. And don't expect to know about it. So Danish anesthesia database, real data, right? Thousands of patients, 2008 to 2011, elective and otherwise. We cannot predict an airway. 58% of the time, we couldn't predict the airway, the difficult airway. 58% of the time. 94% of the time, difficult bag mask ventilations were unanticipated. Most of the time, what saved them was having a backup plan. The backup plan was video laryngoscopy, but guess what? They hadn't checked the equipment earlier. These are attending level anesthetists. These aren't average anesthetists. You can make the argument, maybe yes, maybe no. There are default settings on the app that they use. You can make a hundred different arguments. But even if it's only true 10% of the time, it's still one in 10. And it's still one in 10 too much for us to say that the strategy is to learn the simple, the simplified airway risk index. Good luck applying that in the trauma bay. You're just not going to. So I would contend that to be an airway expert, the first thing that you need to know is how to set yourself up to win. How to have a plan, a backup plan, and a third level plan. Now RSI is by far the most studied in trauma situations and the most successful. But RSI requires preparation. You have to have your bag mask ready. You have to have everything else ready. If you're looking for details, uh, please watch my episode on the difficult airway. But you have to have high-flow oxygen ready, your pre-medications ready, your actual medications ready, although it is RSI, I agree with you. But things like antibiotics, tetanus, etc. should be rolling already. You have to have your uh, secondary adjunct device, your backup person, and your post-intubation drugs available, as well as your CO2 capnography in place. RSI works in known anatomy. RSI does not work in clearly difficult or questionable anatomy. And so then your dilemma becomes, do I go to the operating room where there are most re more resources? Or do I deal with the airway in the emergency room because it's time sensitive? And what's the evidence for it? So if you look at the evidence, by and large, it's consensus statements. And whenever you open an anesthesia book, it's too complicated. I can't have this up in the trauma bay. I got R1s and R2s down there. There's no way they're going to learn all of this off by heart, right? Something that looks like this a little bit more realistic, which is why we use this a lot where I work. So the Difficult Airway Society has come up with a very simple way to deal with an unanticipated difficult airway. Laryngoscopy, try. You don't get it, put an LMA in. Put the LMA in, temporize yourself, take a deep breath, and figure it out. And here's how I figure it out. So this is my completely uh, sort of anecdotal experience-based uh, discussions with anesthetists, buying them coffee, 
discussions with Emerge Room guys that do intubations regularly, ENT guys as well. This is my sort of take on things. So I start making a decision to intubate. Am I intubating because of normal anatomy and depressed GCS, failure to saturate, lung contusions, etc.? Or am I intubating because of abnormal anatomy, like the mandibular fracture that we saw? If I'm intubating for normal anatomy, I proceed for RSI, rapid sequence intubation. If I'm intubating for abnormal anatomy, I make the decision, is the patient stable or unstable? If they're unstable, it's going to be an ER intubation because they can't wait to go to the OR. It's a very similar decision-making process to an ED thoracotomy that needs to be done right then and there. Lola, as we would say in Quebec, right? It has to be done right then and there. And I would begin to intubate in the difficult anatomy scenario while having a dual setup. A second person ready to cut skin and a first person attempting the intubation. If the patient's stable, I will still have the dual setup, but I'm more likely to do it in the operating room. The same applies with RSI. I have one attempt at RSI before I do the dual setup. Even if the airway looks normal, if my junior resident, my senior resident, my fellow is having difficulty and they couldn't get it on the first try, as I'm doing the second attempt, I will already set up the second, the, the, the uh, crack set. And you know, that's just me being paranoid, you'll say, but I'll say at least I have a backup plan. When you're talking about choices of devices, there's like a whole bunch of stuff out there. Recently with paramedics, I've been using the air track when I'm on the field. But uh, for most hospital settings, I'd use direct laryngoscopy with a bougie because it has the highest chance of success. When I'm training somebody, the first couple of intubations, I let them use the video laryngoscope. Uh, we have one that's very similar to a direct laryngoscope, and they like using it, and it turns to help them out a lot. My next step up is fiber optic bronchoscopy, but I'll be honest with you, if the patient's bleeding, I don't tend to use it because the lens is so small, it gets covered up with the smallest drop of blood. And the McCoy, listen... I've been trained in using it, so I use it, but I have seen even fellows in anesthesia end up losing their space with it. Your fail-safe will always be an LMA. So, you know, practice doing eye gels whenever you have hernias on board. So me and my anesthetist, we kind of have a silent agreement. Whenever I'm doing elective general surgery stuff that requires an LMA, like hernias, stuff like that, um, I'll end up putting the LMA. And every now and then, when I have a goiter or a thyroid, um, I take out the tube and look at the vocal cords under bronchoscopic uh, guidance just because I, I want to retain that skill of dealing with this edematous airway situation, difficult airway situation. Moving on uh, to the stake part of this talk, uh, crike versus slash trach. So I keep hearing this a lot and, and you know people tell me slash trach or crike. Effectively, the difference is about a centimeter, but it's a significant centimeter. So a trach is done about a finger's breadth uh, above the suprasternal notch to two fingers breadth above it. It's done between the second and third uh, um, cartilages of the trachea. A crike is done between uh, the cricoid cartilage and the, um, the thyroid cartilage, the lower aspect of the thyroid cartilage. Now... You know, people keep making up reasons why the slash trach works and that doesn't, etc. Slash trachs are great if you can bring the patient to the operating room and you're an ENT surgeon and you have two people attracting for you. As you can see, to perform a slash trach adequately, first you have to be able to cut skin and get retractors in place, dissect down to the thyroid, mobilize the thyroid and take it off. This is not a skill that you will develop in the first two years of residency as an emergency physician. 
and your emergency physician is your front line when it comes to trauma. They're the people who are on the receiving end in most centers. Trauma surgeons are the second line in place. Trauma TTLs, whether they're surgeons, anesthetists, or etc., are also there. But none of the main specialties that deal with the trauma airways, so surgery, general surgery at least, um, uh, anesthesia, or emergency medicine, will be comfortable doing this in an operating room, and your patients don't give you the space to do it. There are certain patient populations where I will do this, and I have done this. I have actually done slash tricks with patients sitting up even. I will do it, but I will only do it in very specific populations and not trauma patients, nor patients that arrive emergently uh, to the um, emergency room with a, a difficult airway that has failed. In a difficult airway that has failed, the most study seems to be the cricothyroidotomy. Longest series is 24 cases. They've all been successful. And the best method based on that series is the scalpel finger bougie technique. Or the scalpel finger technique that has been modified to scalpel finger bougie technique by Scott Weingard. And I use the same technique. Uh, technique's fairly simple. You palpate your area. You do a vertical incision, subsequently transverse one through the cartilage, and you pop the tube in. I would thoroughly recommend you either watch my crack video or Ruben Strayer's, which is actually Ruben Strayer's, to be honest. I stole his and added a commentary to it with the nuances that I would have done differently. Um, but one thing that neither my video nor his addresses that happens fairly a lot in trauma is that your patients may have a difficult airway that you can't intubate because of a retropharyngeal hematoma secondary to a complex vertebral fracture. Now, when that happens, Unless you get the airway through the uh, oropharynx, you are not going to get it in. Unless you get it through a, a, a standard laryngoscopic view, video assisted by Brooptic, I don't care. You're not going to get yourself in a position to be able to do a crack uh, or a uh, slash uh, trach. And the reason why is this young gentleman, 72-year-old patient who was lucky enough to, uh, you know, ha survived and was... Um, graciously has given us the photos that I'm going to be showing you today, showed up at our trauma center here in Kuwait. He had a direct MVC injury to his neck. He was aphasic at the time, saturating 66% bradycardic, and there were four attempts to intubate him before the trauma team was activated. And because his history was unclear, people weren't sure what, what was going on. And in this case, you know, the option to intubate in the ER was already tried. To intubate in the OR would have taken way too long. The surgical airway in the ER and the OR seems to be the best option, and the surgical airway in the OR, he can't wait that long with a SAT of 66%. He's just dissociating oxygen way too quickly. And so, you know, we ended up doing an emergent airway of the surgical nature in the uh, ER and subsequently taking him to the OR. And as you can see, he has a huge hematoma. And um, where do you think that tube is? So, it's very high up, yes. It's kind of not a crike or a slash trach. It's through a thyroid membrane, and it's done by splitting the omohyoid. So this is something that I kind of had to do because of the size of the hematoma. In this CT scan, this is when he stabilized uh, after we had enough time, and I'd evacuated the hematoma surgically. Um, I don't know if you can see the skin clips there, but I did a neck dissection, evacuated out the hematoma, ligated a bunch of vessels, 
and we elected not to dig into the trachea because there was a lot of hematoma across the thyroid too, and the neck wasn't stable enough for us to be able to extend him completely. And as you can see, it's a bit of an abnormal position, but you know the patient did have a fracture of his vertebra, so I couldn't extend him, and he had a massive hematoma blocking anywhere that the literature suggests I should put an airway. And so I had to improvise. I split the floor of the mouth, and I palpated the hyoid bone and went directly under it uh, because I'd seen that area before and uh, tune in in about two episodes and you'll see when I saw it last. And so, you know, that's that was the only place that I could get, get it in, effectively right above the vocal cords. And, you know, it's very risky. It's a very risky area. We're not very familiar with it. But, you know, I would contend that this was a desaturating patient with a hematoma blocking off half of his neck. The next day in the ICU, he was a little bit lethargic. We got an MRI, and we found that he had a frontal lobe infarction. More on that later. But uh, he had suffered a blunt cerebrovascular injury as well, and it was a vertebral artery injury that you're seeing here. And uh, he had a bit of a subdural bleed, but it wasn't that big. And considering everything that he'd been through, you know, we did a CT angio to confirm it. He had a grade 2 vertebral artery dissection. We reported the case because as far as we knew in the literature, it wasn't uh, there before. Um, do not call this the Alzheimer's airway. Do not try this at home, kids. I don't think it should be a routine airway, but it is something to contend with. You know, that these patients, when they come in with blunt neck injuries and massive hematomas, a crack or a slash trick may not be your debate. There may not even be a debate. You may just have to get the airway in. And thankfully, the patient was discharged with no complications, so it's better to be lucky than good. But whenever somebody says a trach versus crack, I say, don't prepare to go. Prepare to be ready and just do it, right? Uh, this is from Scott Weingart, MCRIT. Uh, I would recommend that you go to the MCRIT slash uh, Surgical Airway uh, web link because um, I think it's amazing. Phenomenal resource. Um, I would say always be ready. So always find out where your kit is in your emergency room. Have one attempt at sticking the tube in. If you don't get it in, uh, do, do the dual setup. You'll thank me later. Uh, mark the area if you know that it's a difficult airway and plan to do the crack as if it's going to get done. And when your patient's that agonal, just go for it, right? Just go. Don't think twice. So uh, today's talk is about blunt cerebrovascular injuries, and it's a continuation of uh, last talk uh, where we were talking about a 72-year-old gentleman uh, that had had a crush injury to the neck with a combined vertebral artery uh, injury, a, a C3 vertebral fracture, and a massive hematoma of the neck whereby you couldn't get a crack or a trach in. And so therefore I had to go uh, through uh, the thyrohyoid membrane and split the floor of the omohyoid to get there. Um, you know, we'd reported it in uh, one of our posters. We never got the case report done because... It was just too, too much going on with corona and stuff like that. But the patient did leave the hospital. The one concern I had was that he had developed a frontal lobe infarction. Secondary to the only thing that I can think of is a vertebral artery dissection. And this was confirmed on a CT angio. And so uh, today's talk is about what happens when you miss a blunt cerebrovascular injury and how you can prevent it. So um, another more famous case um, is that of a 13-year-old girl 
who was at a hockey game in 2002, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets versus the Calgary Flames. The puck hit her left temple. She walked to the first aid station. She was GCS of 15. Uh, she'd had a witness seizure there. She'd recovered, ambulated. Her CT brain was considered normal. 24 hours later, uh, she, sorry, 48 hours later, she had fever, sudden loss of consciousness, CT revealed brain edema, and she had died that same day. And Perry Morton, they found out that she had a blunt cerebrovascular injury. And the reason why you screen for this is because, I, by the way, everybody should read the Biffle paper that's quoted here. Uh, it's a good paper that tells you how you can prove a point uh, in medicine and not get yourself into trouble. <laughs> it's a very well-written paper. Uh, so the incidence that's estimated in the Biffle series is between 25 and 35%. Uh, the symptoms, you know, 70% of the time will occur when, when you screen them. But screen an asymptomatic, 27%, right? And that's why it's 25 to uh, 25 to 35%. And, you know, I would say that when you're screening with symptoms, you're already too late because there's a 23% mortality and 48 to 80% of the survivors have permanent neurological deficits. So waiting for symptoms to occur before you do the CT angio or the angiography or the duplex, just not right. Um you know, the majority of injuries will manifest between the first 10 and 72 hours uh, post-trauma. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, somebody uh, shouldn't be screened. In our particular case, well, we got extremely lucky because we had free access to MRI. We picked up on it early, and the patient left the hospital with no neurological deficits, despite suffering a minor infarction. The other reason why is because, you know, forget the mortality risk, forget everything else. If you identify them asymptomatic, they remain asymptomatic, and that's very important. When you look at the traditional risk factors quoted across the literature, and this is an excerpt from the uh, original Biffle paper, uh, anything that has a high-speed mechanism or evidence of a high-speed mechanism manifest in injury burden tends to be associated with cerebrovascular injuries. However, the main sort of warning signs are severe uh, cervical extension, rotation, hyperextension, displaced mid-face or complex mandibular fracture, closed head injury consistent with diffuse axonal injury, near hanging or hanging, a seat belt abrasion across the neck, and I'd contend that the neck hematoma was that, fractured in proximity to the external car internal carotid or vertebral arteries, base of skull fractures or vertebral body fractures. That was the original uh, Biffle criteria. The modified Biffle criteria, the Denver modification of the Biffle criteria, uh, include the uh, presence of arterial hemorrhage, a cervical brewery, expanding cervical hematoma, focal neurological deficit, unexplained neurological findings, ischemic stroke, Lafort 2 or 3, cervical spine fracture, base of skull fracture, first three cervical spine vertebra, and diffuse axonal injury with a GCS below 6 or evidence of hanging or near hanging, or an anoxic brain injury in the context of a mechanistic trauma. Now that's a lot to remember, but effectively what you're looking at here is any hard signs of neck trauma, plus any base of skull fractures, any unexplained drops in GCS, evidence of high-speed mechanisms of injury, including complex Lefort fractures, or base of skull fractures, or diffuse axonal injury. That's basically what you're looking at. Those are the three main components. 
There is a grating system for it, but unlike when we're dealing with a spleen or a liver, the grating system here uh, involves us trying to figure out which patients might benefit from surgery early, and which patients might benefit from antithrombotic therapy, and which patients might progress despite everything. In general, grade 1 is 25% narrowing or less, grade 2 is greater than 25% narrowing, grade 3 is a pseudoaneurysm that has formed, uh, grade 4 is an occlusion, and grade 5 is free extravasation with a, basically an internal decapitation. Most of the grade 1s remain grade 1s. They have a relatively low risk of stroke, 3%. And in most cases, we tend to advocate for antithrombotic therapy, especially the newer guidelines that should be out this month. Grade 2s, however, 70% uh, will progress to grade 3s. In fact, there is some thought that grade 2s aren't really a dissection in the sense that a standardized vertebral artery dissection might be. They might be smaller pseudoaneurysms that are just being picked up. 11% will have strokes if not treated with antithrombotic therapy. Grade 3s, 33% will have strokes, and so therefore should be treated semi-urgently. Grade 4s and 5s require surgery. Whenever you treat them, now there used to be a debate on whether to use heparin or aspirin. The newer guidelines, although they're not level 1 bits of evidence, seem to, to emphasize antithrombotic therapy no matter what it is. The one that's been most studied is the heparin. But the one that's being most used by most practice groups, especially in the realm of vascular and endovascular surgery, seems to be combination of aspirin plavix. Now, we've had recent changes to the guidelines. Uh, this happened literally a week ago. Uh, the changes to the guidelines include a standard screening process being recommended in every hospital. So we use the Denver modification. In other institutions, they do something else. But it has to be written on a paper with a couple of signatures from the higher-ups to make it clear and kosher. Number two, stenting is out. So there was a debate on carotid stenting, etc. That's by the wayside now. We don't stent them. The outcomes just aren't there. CT angio is sort of recommended, like they're saying that it's okay to do, but I think that when you read the wording, what they're really trying to say is do the CT angio because the risk-benefit is optimized there, whereas with angiography, there's certain risks and it's more invasive. There is no real level in evidence, and anything that's above a grade 4 should be surgically corrected urgently. My question to you as a group here is, when should we follow these things up? So. I've made it a rule that we must repeat imaging in a week to 10 days for everybody. Uh, and I follow them up in six months in clinic afterwards. But what do you guys do? Because I haven't seen a consensus yet. And I think that the data might be mildly lacking there. Um, so uh, it's part of a neck and airway trauma uh, course that, or, or talk that uh, I'd given that was sort of, it's, it was supposed to be 40 minutes, but... Um, we kind of stretched it out for an hour and a half to two hours. And this is the gist of what we talked about. In terms of the disclaimer, uh, I'd like to thank uh, my patients for allowing me to use their photos. Uh, feel free to use them for educational purposes. Uh, they're under a Creative Commons license. Penetrating neck injuries will be the topic of the day. And, you know, just to talk about things historically, um, in World War One. Uh, everybody was treated with non-operative management. And the ethos there was that uh, nobody could stop bleeding in the neck if you operated on it. And the good surgeon knows when to operate, the great surgeon knows when not to operate. And I'll be honest with you, all due respect to my learned colleagues, that does not make sense to me. 
Show me the randomized control trial that says that by not operating on somebody with active bleeding in the neck and expanding neck hematoma, things will get better somehow by not intervening on it and watching it, right? It doesn't work that way. And we all know that. The hard way or the easy way. Fast forward to World War II, around about 1956, and exploration became mandatory. If the platysma was violated in the area that we now call Zone 2, everybody would get operated on. You'd get a full neck dissection on that region to make sure that all the vital structures were okay. And that increased our survival from about 70% survival, if you're lucky, to uh, high 90s, like 94% survival, just by introducing obligate operations. By 1986, um, Noel et al. had described a descriptive paper where they made it very clear that the neck is divided into zones, and within these zones sit structures, and that targeting zone 2 for operative intervention selectively will lead to a mortality benefit. These are the zones that were described. This is taken from the Dimitriadis paper, uh, which is, in my opinion, the defining paper uh, on this. Uh, and what they looked at was which zones you were likely to surgically access and which zones you were most likely to end up with a high probability of having an injury. And in terms of surgical access, the angle of the mandible and above was considered difficult to access and was defined as zone 3, including the base of skull. Zone 2 was defined as easy to access between the angle of the mandible and the clavicles, and anything below the clavicles was considered zone 1 and was considered difficult to access by somebody who wasn't a thoracic or cardiac surgeon at the time. Bear in mind that this was the 1980s. This was before or around about the time when trauma surgery was becoming its own thing. The Dimitriadis paper, probably one of the bigger series at the time, uh, 223 patients, proved that, proved that principle that, that because you were more likely to get hit in the soft part of your neck around the front where zone 2 is, you were more likely to benefit from a surgery there. They also showed us that for you to benefit from a surgery, uh, you'd have to be able to address vascular injuries about 20 to 25% of the time, and you'd have to address aerodigestive injuries about 10% of the time, with the rest of injuries not being clinically significant, really, and being easy to evaluate for, with, if you know, hemoneumothoraces, i.e. chest traumas, being part of the game. And I would contend that the take-home message from the slide is, number one, to check the chest, because the neck and the chest are, practically speaking, embryologically the same region. And number two, get used to dealing with vascular and aerodigestive issues. In fact, when you look at the distribution of neck injuries, it is the norm to have combined neck injuries, as we'll see in later cases that we'll talk about today. The zones reflected common areas of injury and also co reflected common areas of surgical access like we talked about. But my contention is that these areas of access may not be particularly relevant uh, in 2013. Because in 2013, the Western Trauma Association algorithm was heavily modified to include cross-sectional imaging. And when you look at the fine print, unless the patient has what are called hard signs or hemodynamic instability, for the most part, in vast majority of cases, you would go for cross-sectional imaging plus or minus scoping, where hard signs were defined as airway compromise, massive subcutaneous emphysema, an expanding or pulsatile hematoma, active bleeding, shock, neurological deficit, or hematemesis. And, you know, just this I stole from Rebel EM. By stole, I mean uh, selectively borrowed, uh, thanks to uh, their uh, foment culture. And... Um, you know, it shows you that, that 
practically speaking, for you to get proximal and distal control, for you to get vascular control, which we now know from, from fair amounts of data, at least on the trauma scale of things, that uh, the vascular injuries are, are something that should be a priority in terms of your management. For you to get proximal and distal control of a vascular injury, for you to control the bleeding, you have to dive into zone one. If it's in zone three, you're going to control retrograde flow. Uh, anti-grade flow, sorry. If it's in zone one, I keep getting them mixed up because I never really use them anymore, and I'll explain why in a sec. If it's in zone one, it's so that you get backflow control, right? But no matter how you slice it, even for tracheal reconstructions, as we'll see later, you're going to need to access zone two. So I would contend that in this model that had started off as being an obligate operative model here and here uh, in the Noyles paper, in this model from 2013 onwards, zone two should be accessed when patients have hard signs. These hard signs should be interpreted as a penetrating stab wound to the abdomen. But it should also be accessed as a gatekeeper to other zones. It's like a laparotomy, right? It's your way in to the rest of the neck. Hard signs and soft signs. So soft signs aren't very clinically relevant in our context, but, you know, they are there. And the old ethos was that you needed the soft signs to justify the CT. Now we can do CTs for screening purposes. If you follow the hard signs, according to the Evans paper in 2018 and multiple other studies using uh, meta-analyses and other discussions, you will have a 90% rate of picking up an injury. So just by following obligate neck exploration for hard signs, the thing that you have on the left, you will pick up on 90% of what you should pick up on. With that in mind, I would argue that you don't need the zones anymore that the zones are for historical purposes. Now, here's my argument. I know it's a very bold and controversial statement, but here's my argument. Let's look at the context of our practice in 2020. Whether you're an emergency room doctor, an anesthetist, or a surgeon, we're all used to fiber optic uh, bronchoscopy. We're all used to fiber optic scopes. We can all scope. We also have extremely good CT scans available to us 24-7, 365, and we're getting better at interpreting them. We all have some baseline training in ICU care. So if you're a surgeon who does trauma, you understand trauma ICU, and you have a very good trauma ICU, chances are, within your setting. If you're an anesthetist who does trauma as TTL, you understand trauma ICU, and you have very good ICU nurses. And if you're an eMERGE doc who does trauma ICU, or who does trauma, you understand the principles of airway management and the ICU and when to intervene. Most of the studies that the guidelines are based on, even the 2013 iteration of the guidelines, are not based on level one data and do not take into context the modern trauma practitioner. The modern traumatologist, the modern expert in trauma, the modern person who sits in the office and makes these decisions and covers call with the rest of us, the head honcho, usually is quite adept and has a very big expertise in this, usually, right? And many of the studies, like we saw from World War I, World War II, and even the 1980s, were pre-neck damage control, right? I would contend that when you look at this chart, which is the latest guideline that we have from 2013, unless you have hard signs, you're going to do a CT angio no matter what. And based on symptoms and findings of CT angios, you're going to decide on whether to scope them in the OR or not. I don't see a point in defining zones if the management in the first line and the second line is going to be the same. I'm just confusing my resident by defining the zones. The only utility of having the zones available to us in 2020 
is for me to piss residents off in rounds and for me to piss people off in exams. That's the only reason why they're there, in my humble opinion. I cannot see with hard signs having a 90% sensitivity for things that I need to treat with an open surgical technique and with these issues being in play and with guidelines being modified to this extent with first line being cross-sectional imaging, second line being endoscopy, I can't see a role for defining zones and I can't see a yield for it. And it's not practical anymore. So let's take a look at this ejection uh, from a bike that walked in. A guy self-extricated, GCS 15 over 15, walked in, no real hemoptysis, but we intubated him nonetheless. And this is what his neck looked like, right? So which zone is it really in? It's in all three zones, right? Zoning, no utility here, right? But it gets even better. So normally, because it's zone two, and it's violated the platysma, and technically that is a blood clot, so you can argue that that's an expanding hematoma if you really wanted to, or that he bled on the scene, you'll find a reason to dissect out the neck. Normally, I would go, right, dissect out the neck, let's get the party started. But here's what we did with this guy. So we had the option of doing a double scope. We had an option of doing a CTA and a double scope. We had an option of doing a CTA alone, and we had an option of doing a neck exploration. We ended up doing a double scope. And we found this. So we did find a mucosal injury, but we didn't find an exposed cartilage or a displaced neck fracture on the CT. Now, would you offer a neck exploration for this? By the book, based on those guidelines, you would. But when you look at people who are experts at ENT, experts at hand and neck surgery, and you look at their case series and their classification system, which is the Schaefer-Furman classification system, this patient would be considered a grade one. He would just be observed with supportive care. He doesn't even need a trach. Even if he had displaced fractures, with some mucosal disruption, but the cartilage was intact, even if that was the case. The worst thing that this guy's looking at is a tracheostomy after a workup to confirm it. Even with displaced fractures, unless they have significant airway compromise, they don't need active surgical intervention at that point. They can be treated in a delayed manner with an open laryngeal exploration and reconstruction, right? In reality, you know, since the 1990s, in ENT, at least since, well, 1982 is when it was first proposed, but 1990s, what you're seeing up here, there's been a classification system in ENT that tells us what to do for these cases, and the answer is not necessarily obligate zone to exploration. So we saved that guy a, 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 a extensive neck dissection. The guy got extubated three days later, spent a week with us, had a swallow assessment, and was set on his way. He did fine. He did absolutely okay. CT Andrew showed me no vascular injuries. Everything was fine. Moving on. Which zone is this? So technically, this is a zone one. But there's a huge clot there. Now, by the book, a zone one should be difficult to surgically explore. Now, the paramedics put in two stay sutures so that it doesn't move. There's some wisdom to that in some textbooks. There's a complete lack of use to that in others. I'm not going to argue the point. But do we really need the CT in this case, right? There's, there's blood frothing there, right? I don't think that we need a CT. I think that we need to take it out. And that's what we did. It's a piece of saw that came off, flew off, broke off, whatever happened, happened, and it got impacted in the guy's face. Using those guidelines by the book and not following the hard signs equals OR would mean that this guy would go to CT, we'd probably get some artifact, we won't know what's going on, and we would have just delayed his care. He ended up having this piece of, uh, of saw taken out, and we ended up uh, fixing the facial artery, and he did fine. He was also discharged about five days later. 
Now, which zone is this? So when you look at it, it looks like a neck injury, right? And it looks like a superficial pec situation. But when we exposed the wound and we looked at the end of the slash, we found lung. The patient had nothing to do with zone two. Now, zone two, yes, the platysmal was violated. You can clearly see that in the wound. Absolutely. Okay, he was attacked with a saw. Uh, people are violent where I live. What can I tell you? Um, so he was attacked with a saw. There is a superficial violation of the platysma. By the book, he should have gotten at least a neck exploration. But we opted to deal with the lungs first, because if you can't breathe, you have a problem. And his airway was intact. And we had a secure airway because we intubated him. So the patient did his own thoracotomy. We did a primary closure. We did wash out that platysma wound. We did a double scope. The patient was fine. He went home. No hard signs of the neck. So the chest took priority. So I would contend that hard signs should be your operative decision in the emergency room. And cross-sectional imaging plus scoping, you can do it in the OR if you want. But like we talked about before, our personal algorithm in the center where I train and work and train people is, if it's an unstable neck injury with an unknown anatomy, they get intubated in the emergency room. If it's stable, they get intubated in the OR with a double scope. You can do that here too. Same thing applies here from the first talk that we had. So in conclusion, my guide to zone-free living, so as not to confuse people, is hard signs go to the OR. Soft signs or clinical suspicion gets a CT angio. Once you've confirmed no vascular injury, look for aerodigestive injuries. Use your discretions to do a scope or explore. I admit them for 24 hours myself. If it's a vascular injury that's very hard to access surgically, I do consider embolization because we have a vascular and endovascular surgeon that's awesome here. And when you look at the data, if you do contrast swallow in the pre-CT era with double scoping, you have a high 90s uh, sensitivity and specificity. Combine double scope with CT that's contrast enhanced, you're hitting 97 to 99% sensitivity specificity in some series. So it is really becoming the gold standard. Guidelines don't advocate for it yet because we're dealing with retrospective case series, right? But secretly between you and me, in most high echelon joint theater combat systems, the educational problem program does adhere to hard signs go to the OR, soft signs get imaging, and scopes if required. And that seems to be the approach that I think we're going to end up matriculating in the rest of the trauma services around the world. In terms of operative options, so uh, let's look at a couple of cases. Um, these are all survivors. Feel free to use these images. Uh, I was lucky enough to get them, uh, you know, and to get patients to consent for them. Uh, this is a patient who was unlucky enough to get stabbed in the neck with an object. Um, so where would you go with this? So he's talking, as you can clearly see. Uh, would you do a chest x-ray, then go to the OR? Would you do an extended fast, uh, then possibly a CT chest or the OR? Would you do a CT angio, head and neck, then go to the OR? Or would you do a CT angio, chest, head and neck, and go to the OR? So in our case, we ended up, uh, this is just another view to get a better idea. We ended up doing a chest x-ray first. And it's a transmediastinal wound now. It's no longer a neck wound. And we went to the OR. Intraoperatively, we made the decision to perform a sternotomy as opposed to a traditional neck dissection because it extended into the chest. And we did the front cover of the seventh edition of Mattox. That's literally what we did. And what we found was uh, we had a... I apologize for the finger there. Um, I'm not sure how that happened. Mm. Does not look good. I apologize to everybody. I'm going to add an adults-only sticker to this on YouTube. So... 
We did the sternotomy and we found uh, that we had a carotid injury for which we had to get brachiocephalic control and uh, put a subclavian uh, clamp on the other side. The carotid was reimplanted with interrupted proline sutures, nor air emboli had occurred. And as you can see, we subsequently dissected out, lifted up the carotid, and we looked at the tracheoesophageal junction, and we found uh, that we needed to do a repair with a couple of interrupted vicrals and put a sternocleidomastoid flap in the middle. Uh, the patient had some drains put in. Drains were taken out six days later. Day seven, he was discharged home. This case is just to illustrate. Deal with the vascular problem first to be able to see the aerodigestive problem. You can't just put clamps on and then further explore for the aerodigestive problem, especially if you've already intubated. Another thing is put an NG tube in to be able to feel your esophagus. And the other thing is to illustrate the point that you shouldn't be looking for nerves because A, it's highly unlikely, and B, combined aerodigestive vascular injuries are going to be the norm. Expect it to happen. The exception is to just have a vascular injury or to just have a tracheal injury. In terms of operative exposure that's exclusive to the neck, that case was an exception. It was just a very cool case, and I decided to share it with you. When you're exposing the neck, it's either a parallel to the sternocleidomastoid situation, in which you're going to identify the sternocleidomastoid, lift it up, identify the internal jugular vein, ligate the facial vein, and get access to the carotid artery. You're either going to move the carotid artery below or the uh, vein above and get access uh, to the tracheoesophageal junction. If you identify an injury, as per EAST guidelines in 2008, you need to be able to operate on it. You need to be able to get control of it operatively. If you can't, then you proceed to angio. You can ligate any veins you want in the neck, but with arteries, you should only uh, ligate them if there is a severe neurological deficit present or there's no backflow. In terms of repairs, primary repair has fallen out of favor in the vascular literature. It's still used in high-caliber traumas like the aorta or the subclavian, bigger, thicker, juicier arteries. You can do a primary repair. Otherwise, we do patch grafts with bovine or pericardial patches, sometimes a venous patch graft. Interposition grafts are usually vascular concerns, and if we're going to do it, we're going to do it after placing a shunt, typically. Um, I'm going to do a whole talk on vascular injury at some point. I'm still working on it because it's going to be extended probably. But I think it's important. We have a couple of cool slides to show you guys, uh, similar to this one. But having a shunt in place uh, helps you in A, addressing the concern appropriately, and B, planning for an interposition graft once the patient is more stable. There are certain bleeds, like vertebral artery bleeds, or bone bleeds, as they're called sometimes, where you'll just have to stuff a piece of bone wax and hope for the best. Post-operatively, I tend to get a CT angio plus or minus formal angiography and embolization for these cases. Once you've done that, however, once you have control, you can mobilize either below the vein or above the artery and get to the tracheoesophageal junction. I personally like to go below the vein because I don't like to get stuck with the thyroid. Putting a retractor on the thyroid is hell for the residents because they want to peer under you. And so lifting up the vein just seems to be an easier access for me. And I like to secure it that way. Now, lacerations that involve uh, the vocal cords of the free margins or things like that, multiple displaced fractures, cracheotracheal separations, fractures of the median uh, or paramedian parts of the thyroid or cricoid fractures all require some sort of surgical intervention at some point. But remember, your goal is to ventilate the patient first. So your first move should always be a tracheostomy if you know how to do nothing else. And the tracheostomy has to avoid the injury. Either go distal to it or go through it 
if you really have to, but it's a temporizing measure and should only be there for an hour max while you define an airway, or go under it. Right? Uh, there are lots of cartoons that illustrate how to deal with different parts of the neck, uh, from the supratracheal to the tracheal region. However, do not get confused or intimidated by these cartoons. In reality, the worst tracheal injuries that you are going to have are cricotracheal separations, either partial or complete. But even when you have those, fortunately, most of the time, they're barely displaced, especially if they're high up above the sternum. Uh, as you can see here, here's one that we made earlier. The first step is to get a tube distal. We managed to intubate the patient oropharyngeally. And you can see how low it is. It's right on the sternum. And, you know, I find that in these cases, using stay sutures helps me out a lot. I'm sorry, this part of the talk is mainly geared towards surgeons or people who do neck explorations. But the stay sutures help me out a lot because retractors get in my way. This is a very small space. It's a space that's about the size of maybe a dime, if you're lucky, that you're working in. I use the smallest retractors that I have on the set. Typically, I use dental sets, uh, OMF retractors. Even though I work with the NT surgeons a lot, I prefer the OMF style of work. And I use Alice's as retractors too, because they're both hemostatic and give me a lot of space to work. As I do that, I, I, I tend to uh, find the edges of the trachea, mobilize it further, and then I take stay sutures on either side of the defect itself and lift it up into the wound. Once I've lifted it up, I debride the edges, and then I just suture it in place and make sure that the uh, ET tube is going distal to it. I tend to stitch the ET tube to the mouth because I'm paranoid like that. And in this particular case, I didn't put in a tracheostomy because he was young. And it was a 20% circumferential wound with viable cartilage. So I knew that it would heal very quickly, relatively speaking. And as you can see, it's a very well buttressed repair. I brought down a small flap. And I did have to divide the isthmus of the thyroid to get there. But it looks, you know, as you can see, it's, it's, it's fairly okay there. Um, emergent tracheostomies can happen if you need them. I wouldn't recommend it, though, uh, if you have something that's this healthy and if you have an ENT surgeon that agrees with your decision. If you're not an expert in head and neck, just put a tracheostomy in and wait for an ENT surgeon. I can't emphasize this enough. The main reason why I like doing these cases is because I developed the confidence. For me to develop the confidence, I was lucky enough uh, to have worked with ENT residents that eventually became ENT fellows, that eventually became ENT consultants and attendings, that eventually became my partners in crime when we operate on these patients. Right? Having that, that ability to work in a collegial manner makes you exponentially better quicker. Whether you are postgrad or not, having a healthy ability to work with other people and the humility to work with them in an effective manner is probably something that should be studied and recommended in guidelines because I can't find anything that makes me a better surgeon, to be honest, my personal experience. If the cricoid is intact and if it's distal to the cricoid, that's as far as you need to go. You should use absorbable sutures. I use PDS for everything or Vicro. Now, when the laryngeal complex is involved, it's considered tiger land. Now, in a previous episode, I talked about the uh, infrahyoid suprathyroid airway that we uh, published on. And this is the first patient who did it. He did it to uh, himself in an argument, or somebody did it to him. I don't know. I don't ask any questions. And we ended up having to put an ET tube through the wound itself where we saw air bubbles. Unfortunately, because of the amount of torrential bleeding that you're seeing, that tube got clotted off. And as you can see, I had to put a second ET tube in to ventilate. So quick tip here, 
always leave the tube there because you don't know whether you lacerated the esophagus, you went into the gastrocnemius, you don't know. In this case, it was in the trachea. Nothing bad happened. But keep both tubes in until you've explored them surgically. As you can see, I sighted an ET tube under uh, my assistant's hand over there. And we can now uh, ligate all the small vessels in the neck. And we've got an exposure. So there are no named vessels here. There are no big vessels here. The biggest vessel that you're going to get here is the submental artery, which you can see is ligated with a knot, right? Everything else is tiny, 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 okay? And because they're that tiny, uh, we can ligate them liberally uh, ad nauseum with complete impunity. And that gives us a, a clear playing field to work in. And as you can see, the vocal cords are actually clearly visible there. I typically like to use my fingers to palpate the area and to explore the area because fingers will do less harm than most surgical instruments. And once I'm confident of the anatomy, then I begin to bring things together and structures together. As you can see, the patient did fine with the tracheostomy. Uh, he subsequently had the drain out after 48 hours, started eating and drinking with normal swallowing. He did have some hoarseness of voice. Uh, we kept the ET tube in for about 10 days, took it on two weeks. He had speech therapy for another three weeks and is now copus mentis and at home. Couple of tips here. Uh, avoid searching for any nerves and shit. Uh, if the nerves are hurt, then the nerves are hurt. It's a very low percentage, like we talked about. Avoid putting a trick through the injury permanently. Yes, I did do it that one time, and you saw that that patient saved another patient's life because now I know what that plane looks like. Conserve any viable trachea that you have left. Evaluate associated injuries. Separate the trachea from the esophageal suture lines by having a muscle flap. The easiest is the omohyoid or sternocleidomastoid flaps. And flex the neck postoperatively. Don't put a C-collar in, right? Proper airway management is key. So having nurses that are educated in managing these complex airways is key. A diagram that's this complicated shouldn't exist in an emergency situation, but should be read on its own. Open exploration now in modern times in ENT is advocated for in severely displaced fractures with significant airway compromise requiring a tracheostomy. Otherwise, primary repairs are pretty much the take-home message here. Repair them like you would any anastomosis, but put something through it to buttress it, either an ENT-style mini stent, laryngeal stent, for example, or having an ET tube go through it. For the cervical esophagus, try and perform a primary repair and drain usually 25%-ish. Very rarely do I exteriorize now. So what I, my go-to approach is, if I think it's devitalized, I'll close whatever I have left there, knowing that I'm going to end up stricturing, put a drain in, and put in a feeding tube ASAP, either percutaneously or open. I've had to staple off ends with thermal injuries, such as gunshot wounds in the mid-thoracic esophagus, and I've had to call in for delayed reconstructions, but I always presume that a stricture will form. And whenever they form, the best thing that you can do for your patient is to try and resect the area that's formed and repair it. That's the by-the-book answer. But as you'll see with the case series that we're working on in our research group, uh, hopefully will be published within the next year or so, uh, we are doing a lot of stents for these cases now. And we're not really doing what the book says. And we've had very good success with them. I've included this for historical purposes because in every talk that I give like this, somebody asks me about a T-tube to the diaphragm. I don't do it anymore. People still do it in some centers. Do not clamp vessels. Do not poke or prod without knowing what you're doing because you might release the hematoma unless you're in a controlled setting. Do not remove impaled objects in the emergency room. Place an NG tube when you're in the operating room only and ask for help from a friend. So the reason why I have such a collection of cases is because uh, the place that trained me, we had a very good working environment. So 
we as residents, everybody did trauma. When I said everybody did trauma, the radiology resident did trauma, the emerge guy did trauma, the internal medicine guy did a month of trauma as a junior. The whole center was a trauma center. The culture there was trauma. Everybody does trauma. Trauma, trauma, trauma. If you didn't do trauma, you didn't, you didn't know anything. Like, it, it, trauma was more, ATLS was more important than ACLs. Forget it. Trauma, trauma, trauma. And so, because everybody rotated on the trauma service, as residents who were genuinely interested in trauma, and I was one of those crazy people that even as an R1, kind of, I didn't know that I wanted to do trauma, but I knew that it was something that I, I actually was comfortable with. You'd get to know other residents from other specialties. And Tamara Majevic uh, was lucky or unlucky enough to be the person that I would call for all the disasters that you just saw. Literally, every single one of them. Tamara would be on the phone with me. We did it when we were our R3s. Uh, I'd call her when we were our fives, And then uh, I think that that was after her fellowship. Uh, even as an attending, when we were working together, I'd call her in and I'd tell her to come in and help us out. So thanks, Tamara. Uh, you gave me an education in ENT, um, whether I liked it or not, uh, under uh, very high-stress circumstances. But guess what? I think, you know, she would say the same thing, that we learned a lot from just working together in a non-judgmental way. And I think that that's very important. Don't judge your colleagues for calling you for help. Uh, everybody likes to have a weekend off, but everybody needs a hand. Um, thank you for listening and watching and listening to this series. So screen for high-risk blunt cerebrovascular injuries. Uh, prepare for a difficult airway plan. Uh, get the tube in the hole. Uh, heart signs equals OR until proven otherwise. And always have a friend around.